Well, good morning. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, you picked a great Sunday to join us. We're looking at the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Find 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're in the latter, kind of the, the latter part of this book where Paul is, uh, for lack of a better term, Paul is getting in the ring. He is going toe-to-toe with the false apostles that are, uh, that have wooed a unrepentant minority away from their affections and they're listening to the apostle Paul to now listen to these false apostles and the false gospel that they preach. Uh, So the massive, uh, the large majority of this church up to this point has repented and have turned back to listening to this one true apostle who brought the message of salvation to begin this church. And last week we looked at uh, Paul holding up two kinds of of, um, commendation, human commendation by human metrics and human examples. And then we looked at Paul looking at his own divine commendation or the commendation that comes from the Lord upon the one true apostle in this church. And all through the course of this book, Paul has been fighting for the heart of the church. He's been pleading with the church for the church to open their hearts to him as he has served and loved and sacrificed and fought and suffered for this church uh, to be established and to grow in the faith. So what he's doing here as we we move into 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is building a contrast. Uh, And as he does it, Paul is going to come with very sarcastic language. He's going to use a lot of irony in this chapter. And by the end, he's basically going to accuse people of following Satan. So if you thought Paul was just kind of soft, he is just going to come with it here this morning. Uh, and talk about what exactly is happening with these false apostles in the midst of the church. So the, the, the uh, chapter up to this point, if you look at, just take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. It's about, whatever, 33 verses. And this begins uh, what Paul will call as essentially his fool's speech. What he's going to do is, is begin to commend his own ministry as if he was... Uh, working with the metrics of the false apostles. And all through this, he'll talk about boasting. He'll talk about foolishness. He'll talk about, uh, I shouldn't have to talk like this to get your attention and get you to understand what's at stake with these false apostles trying to commandeer the church. So the first part of this discussion, it really won't happen until about verse 20, which we'll look at next week. But the first part of this discussion, we'll look at uh, the motives of the false teachers. That's the first four or five verses. Then you're going to have a central section in the first 15 verses we'll look at here, a central section where Paul's going to talk about his own motives his own spiritual convictions that commend him as a true apostle. And by the end, uh, you're going to look at who the one master is of these false teachers. So let's just jump into it here. Let's pray and we'll get right going. Father in heaven, thanks for your word to us. We pray for our hearts and minds that, that you would open them, help us to understand your word. As Psalm 119 says that we've already read here this morning that the unfolding of your words give, gives light. So, Father in heaven, we pray that you would make my words clear, that your word would come alive in our hearts, that you would capture our attention and our affection and our intellect, that you would work within the reasoning that you have given us to understand what your spirit wants to say to us through your word here this morning, and that we would leave this place understanding that uh, our hearts should be in tune with who you are and the great love that you, would, you have displayed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we ask for your grace, 
We ask for uh, the spirit to work in us and for it to work in me and through this text and the life of our church and for you to bless our endeavor to know you more. In Christ's name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. Y'all there? We good? Look at verse 1, what Paul says here. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Now, Paul, when he talks about foolishness, in the way that he speaks about his ministry, says, this is a dumb thing for me to do. This is a foolish thing for me to do. I'm about to write something to you that I shouldn't have to write. You should understand, church, who I am and what I've gone through and how I've preached to you and how I began this church and how the marks of an apostle have actually been worked in and among you, that you're a result of my ministry. We've seen this all the way through 2 Corinthians, that they are proof of God's commendation of the apostle Paul's message. There's true conversion that happens in this church. And Paul is going to use a turn of phrase here that he'll use in a few verses later. But he'll say, bear with me in this foolish kind of boasting. Bear with me in talking like this. I wish you would bear with me. Verse 2. Now his reasoning is going to be punctuated by this word F-O-R. It's going to explain to you why Paul is talking like this. So verse 2 begins like this, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Remember how Paul began in 2 Corinthians chapter 10? I, Paul, myself implore you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Remember that? How Paul says, I as an apostle don't just teach to you without the very character of Jesus Christ uh, and modeling my ministry upon the very gentleness that Jesus displayed during his life. And what Paul is going to share here, again, as a true apostle, is going to share the very heart of God for his people. All throughout both the Old and New Testament, God is said as being a jealous God. God wants his people to be in singular, devoted, one-on-one, no-other-gods-before-me kind of relationship. And Paul says, bear with me for just a minute because what is happening in my heart is that you would be connected to God. And I share that burden. Do you have family or friends that you know do not know Jesus Christ? People that you would like to step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Then you know the burden that Paul has for these people. You know the seriousness and the singularity of which he is preaching. Remember what he said back in chapter 5. Be reconciled to God. This is the only message through the only Christ. This is the only relationship where you will find ultimate, eternal, heavenly salvation. There's just one message. There's just one way, truth, and life, right? And Paul says, I feel this burden of divine jealousy for you. Why? Well, it's because the remainder of the verse, I betrothed to you, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 talks about the fact that he is the father, spiritually speaking, of this church. When Paul preached the gospel and this group of people came to faith and believed in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was their salvation, he died on the cross for their sins, Paul says, I became your spiritual father. And he uses a marriage analogy now to say that I, in the role as the father, 
betroth you to one husband. Betrothal is kind of like our engagement, only it's more serious. During the betrothal period, the father of the bride keeps the bride in purity, away from any other suitors, any other attempts to woo her away from the husband. And commentators think that Paul is taking an eschatological or an end times approach to the time when this bride will be presented to Jesus. You remember how the end of Revelation goes? That here comes the church clothed in fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, coming out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. And Paul says, I began this to you. We began the betrothal. You are now engaged to Christ. And my job as an apostle is to make sure that you stay, look at the remainder of the verse, pure as a virgin prepared for Christ. So the betrothal period is one of singular devotion, of singular focus that there's coming a time where the wedding and the consummation of the relationship will be fulfilled. And during that time requires purity, requires devotion, because there's coming a day, the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5, where Christ will present the church to himself without spot or blemish or any such thing. So if we're in the betrothal period, the engagement period, what does that mean for our relationship with Jesus Christ? What does that mean for the temptation that the Corinthian church is facing in the life of their church right now? What they are facing is a temptation to have somebody opposed to the marriage. Somebody else to come into the context of the church and say, you don't need to be one with Jesus Christ. You need to follow me. I need to dissuade you from your affectionate relationship, your singular devotion to Jesus Christ, and I need you to listen to me. I need you to wed me. Which shows you that when Paul talks about what he feels in his chest, what he cares about in the life of this church, is that they would be singular, singularly devoted to a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I used this illustration last week with the guys. Guys, you remember the illustration where we said, imagine somebody moves into your house and starts taking your wife on dates. And imagine somebody starts taking your kids out for breakfast. And imagine they set up a cot in your back room. And imagine they start making people breakfast. And we said there that God has assigned an area of responsibility to you, right? That, whoa, 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 I'm the husband in the house. I'm the father of these kids. I'm the one who has the authority given by God to be the leader in this home. What are you doing here? And when Paul uses this illustration it gets even more um, sinister than the area of responsibility because it tells you the false teachers in the midst, it tells you the individual that moved into your home would say to you, I want her heart. I want the heart of those kids. We're not just mano y mano in the house anymore, that there is a snake in the midst, Right? There's a problem now in the house when somebody wants to woo your wife away from you. When somebody wants to capture the attention and the affection of your kids away from you. It's far more dark and sinister. Now watch what Paul says. Look at verse 3. What makes an apostle afraid? You want to know? Is it suffering? What worries Paul? And it shows up in verse 3. I'm afraid. Well, Paul, why are you afraid? 
I'm afraid that as the serpent, watch what he uses here. As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Now, what does Paul think happened in the Garden of Eden? Now, we've talked about this since chapter 10. Remember about spiritual warfare? That the very first instance of spiritual warfare in your Bible happens in the garden. It happens in a conversation. It happens between the serpent and Eve, where the serpent says, he questions God's word. Did God really say? He questions God's heart. God knows that on the day that you eat of it, you'll be like God. He questions God's justice. You will not surely die. And he questions whether or not Eve should stay within the limits assigned to her by God because she looks at the fruit, she desires the fruit, she longs for the fruit to make her wise, she reaches out her hand and she touches it. And Paul says, you're in the same situation. Now listen, for Paul to say this to the Corinthian church and to take the very first instance of spiritual warfare and apply it to what is happening in the Corinthian church, we would be foolish to say that we don't face the same amount of spiritual warfare today. It would be foolish for us to say that we are far more advanced and cultured and intellectually savvy. Because for Paul to say, I am nervous about you, church, is for Paul to apply what has been happening all throughout the, the biblical literature. All throughout the spiritual warfare instances in the scriptures. They all have the ambition to woo God's people away from God. They all have the ambition to make you question, did God really say that? To make you question God's heart for you. To make you question whether or not obedience to God's rules and God's command is actually good for you. Are there any temptations out there today like that? Any? I mean, how many can you come up with in five minutes? that say you don't need to listen to God, you don't need to stay within the limits that he's assigned to you. Remember the humility of Paul last week where Paul says, I won't boast beyond in, in limits. I'll stay right within the area of influence God has assigned to me. So Paul says, I'm nervous. I'm scared for you that as the servant deceived Eve by his cunning, apply it. Who's Eve in this context? It's the Corinthian church. Your thoughts will be led astray. Now, we're not going to come back and talk about the false apostles for a little bit. Because in the middle of this chapter, Paul's going to highlight the contrast between himself and the false apostles. But by the end of this passage, you'll see, and he'll come right out and say, here's what the false apostles are doing. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. Literally, your thoughts will be destroyed. Your thoughts will be corrupted, the word is translated in other places. Corrupted from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Well, he just talked about purity, didn't he, in the previous verse. So if you're going to connect the word purity in the marriage context, now Paul's going to apply the same word purity in our relationship to Christ to the Genesis 3 context. So who is Eve meant for? Eve is meant for a loving, singular, devoted, pure relationship with God. Amen? Who are the people of God meant for? The people of God are meant for a singular, pure, devoted, holy, one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ. 
What do we do when we gather here together as a church but to remind one another that Jesus is faithful, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for your sin, Jesus knows you and will come and receive you to himself one day and he will have accomplished every single spiritual work that he promised to accomplish in you at the end of your life, right? That's exactly what Jesus is. That's who he is. He loves you, he's for you, he's died for you to prove his love to you. But then what happens? Monday morning, we all go out and we go, I don't know if he's really, he really loves me or not. Gosh, these other gospel stories I hear out there that speak to my own rising influence, that speak to me getting a reputation, that speak to me having more success and more comfort and more recognition in this world, in my job, my workplace, and my skills and abilities and all of those things are this constant assault in your spiritual life to trade the love of Christ for the love of something else. I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray for sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Four, now he explains it again. Look at what happens in the next verse. If someone comes, which probably means that there's an individual that shows up in the church. Somebody now joins the church. Somebody now wants to have influence in the church. And these false apostles arrive in the church. Well, what kind of doctrine are they teaching? What are the things that they're saying? Now remember, Paul began this church by the right preaching of the gospel, of Christ and him crucified. Now, do you want to know what the foundation of false doctrine is? You're going to see it right here in this verse. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. There's your first hint. You know, of the first six ecumenical councils, five of them had to do with who Jesus Christ was. Which means if I can get you to believe, and this happens, gosh, all the time, for you to be a Christian and to believe in explicitly who the scriptures say Jesus is to be is to make you vastly out of step with the culture. And in many ways, vastly out of step with many churches in our day and time. Because the real Jesus is defined by the word of God. It's defined by what God has said about Jesus Christ himself. And what happens for the Corinthian church is that somebody arrives and preaches a Jesus who isn't the real Jesus. He's a humanitarian Jesus. He's a philosophical Jesus. He's a spiritual guru Jesus. He's vegan Jesus or kung fu Jesus or whatever the kind of Jesus is that allows me to make sure that my belief system works. It just so happens that this Jesus that is being preached allows these false apostles to continue advancing their reputation, advancing their influence in the eyes of their culture, advancing their financial stability and security because their ministry is growing. Well, what a surprise that that Jesus doesn't agree with you, right? For you to know you are following the real Jesus Sometimes Jesus will disagree with you. I'm sorry. Jesus disagrees with me. 
And to turn the conversation into, Jesus agrees with me on that. You see what I just did? Jesus agrees with me on that. When my convictions is to totally upend the relationship with Jesus we ought to have. Our relationship with Jesus ought to be, Jesus, what do you think about this? Our relationship with Jesus ought to be, Jesus, what is pleasing to you in this situation? According to your character and your word and who you are, help me to order my life according to your word and your character, right? Isn't that how sanctification and spiritual growth is going to happen? Remember what Paul said in chapter 3? Let me go back to chapter 3. 317, where the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. How in the world are you going to grow into the image of Jesus Christ? How are you going to be the man or woman that God has called you to be without face-to-face time with Jesus Christ? So when Paul says, back in verse 4, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than, than the one we proclaimed... Which is to say, they're preaching a Jesus that you did not believe in. Or this, you receive a different spirit from the spirit that you received. You know what the spirit does? We don't have time to go into all of what the spirit does. Read John 16, read Romans 8, read even 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that I just read right there. But the spirit here transforms us. The spirit in chapter 1 seals us with a guarantee that we are the very children of God. And Paul says, now you receive a spirit that is not the spirit that you received. And number three, you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted. Why is Paul scared? Look at the remainder of the verse. You put up with it readily enough. Now, if you want to circle a word, put up with, it's the very same phrase that Paul uses in verse one. Please bear with me for just a minute as I talk like a fool. So what's happening in this church? This church is too open-minded. This church is too tolerant. This church is too flexible on their doctrine of Jesus Christ. Their Christology is too broad. Their pneumatology, their understanding of who the Spirit is, is too broad and too flexible. Their understanding of where true salvation lies now begins to be open. It's not Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. It's whatever the new and common and popular teaching is that makes its way into the church. Verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Paul coins a term that only Paul uses, and he only uses it in one place of the Bible right here. And it's almost like Paul is reading off of a business card. It's almost like Titus comes back to Paul with a report of what's happening in the church, and he goes, hey, there's this guy named Gary in the church, and he's calling himself a super apostle. So if you want to put down a note here, here's Paul's irony. Here's Paul's sarcasm. And Paul says, I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Because this has been the the challenge in the church. Is Paul a true apostle? Is Paul on the same level as these individuals who come into the church and preach in a more fancy and dramatic way? 
who have letters of recommendation from other churches, who have a great following and people are liking their messages on YouTube, who now enter into the church and Paul pauses for a minute and says, you are in spiritual danger. You are in a spot where your spiritual life is being tempted away from singular devotion in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, I'm not inferior to these guys over here. I'm not inferior to these super apostles that they're calling themselves. Verse 6. Now watch, here comes what Paul is going to do in this next flow of argument. Is he's going to expose the false apostles for who they are. Which will provide the ground of his final assessment at the end of our time here today. But he comes back to deal with the accusations he's receiving. Remember the accusations that Paul has received thus far. He walks according to the flesh. Remember that? That his letters are bold and powerful, but in present he's, he's kind of weak and he's passive and he's timid. And now we get here in verse 6, another sense, another accusation and critique against this apostle Paul is that he's not a skilled rhetorician. Is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. Look that up. <clears throat> He's not skilled in oratory. Now, in the Greek times, the orators were vastly popular. This is a line of work where people made some money to turn a phrase and use clever illustrations and to be powerful and convincing and intellectually astute in the ways that they spoke to a group of people. There would be massive amounts of financial opportunity in a world like this. And the accusation against Paul is that he's not a pro. He's not in that line of work. He doesn't have the degrees and the reputation that he ought to have like these professional traveling super apostles do. So Paul will grant, even if I am unskilled in speeching, unskilled in speeching, that is, isn't that great? Man, that's great. That's fantastic. Oh, don't you love getting humbled publicly? <laughs> Even if I am unskilled in speaking. I got, you know what unskilled is there? It's the same word, uh, it's the root word in Greek that we get the term idiot from. Isn't that awesome? Even if I'm an idiot in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Now, this begins to form the ground of Paul's boasting. Has Paul met Jesus Christ? He has, he's met him face to face. Does Paul carry accuracy in terms of his doctrinal content? He does. Paul will boast to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that there's not one thing that I did to shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of the word of God to you. I didn't pull any punches. I didn't make anything veiled. I made it all plain and clear. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain. Literally, we've revealed this to you in all things. You know, what's interesting about these false apostles uh, is what they look for in the, to validate their ministry is the reception of the people. Look, if you're a bad stand-up comic, how do you know? Well, nobody laughs, right? 
And they go, well, you, that, you're not called to that. That's not the thing you ought to be doing. But if you're great at it, your craft is validated by the response of the people in the pews, right? Or the, or the audience or whatever it is. And these false apostles gain their standing by what people think about their ministry. And Paul says, it's not delivery that is the most important. It's not being clever that is the most important. In fact, it's the content of the gospel that is the most important. Amen? It doesn't matter how fancy it is. It doesn't matter how clever the illustration. It doesn't matter how convincing and upright and and good-looking even the people are who speak. It's content over delivery. Now, Paul dealt with this in his ministry already. Do you know that? And he dealt with it with the Corinthians. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 11 and go back to 1 Corinthians, just one book before, in chapter 2. This church struggles with factions and divisions being in their midst. And Paul talks about that in the, in the first part of 1 Corinthians. And he, but I want you to see 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in the way that Paul showed up in this church. Because Paul, when he preaches the gospel, he understands that to get, a, there's always a desire uh, in a group of people that fits their cultural context. So he says earlier in the, in the end of chapter 1, he'll say, Jews demand signs. They want some supernatural validation of the message. And Greeks seek wisdom, which means it's got to fit our cultural narratives. It's got to fit the values of our culture. But Paul does something different. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I will not play according to the culture's rules and values because that's not how you're saved. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I made a conviction stance in the culture. I'm not going to play those games. The singular point of my message, the very tip of the spear is going to be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Does that sound impressive to you? Doesn't sound impressive to me. Verse 4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Because you don't get saved because it makes sense to you. Rather, in demonstration of the spirit and in power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Amen? I don't want my faith to rest in things that everybody understands. I need regeneration from the finger of God in my life. And Paul says the singular thing, the singular nail that I'm going to drive in this church is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Come back to 2 Corinthians now. I am not inferior in knowledge. I'm going to take that nail and I'm going to drive it. And you're going to face temptations to disbelieve it, to draw your heart away, to listen to false teachers who will try to get you to believe a false Jesus validated by a false spirit that leaves you with a false gospel. Now, do you feel the seriousness of Paul's writing? You feel the seriousness with with which he addresses what is happening in this church? 
Where are we? Verse 6? We all in 6? Look at verse 7. Now Paul's going to turn. He's going to talk to you about his own ministry convictions. He's talked to you about, here's what's at stake. Your heart can be distracted and tempted to follow something, someone other than the real Jesus Christ. And what Paul is going to do now is begin to divide the congregation. He's going to divide the, uh, the convictions of the false apostles and true apostles. We've been neck and neck in this, haven't we? He's been going back and forth. Bink, bink, bink. They want to do this. I don't do that. They want to do this. I don't do that. They want to have this value. I don't have this value. I have the sincerity of Christ. I have the true gospel. I have the fact that Jesus has called me. He's called me with an area of influence to have authority in this place and in your hearts. And you should open your hearts to me. And now what Paul is going to do is brilliant. It is profoundly intelligent for the way in which he's going to do ministry in the Corinthian culture. Look at verse 7. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? Now there's two accusations here. One is that Paul is refusing to take money for his preaching ministry from the Corinthians. You ever get something free from like a fast food restaurant and you make sure all of your kids have one and by the time you get home, at least three are broken and now you've got to handle the emotional fallout of this free plastic object that should have lasted longer than 10 minutes but it didn't because you gave it to a kid. Has anybody ever been there? Been there a couple times. What's the accusation? Is that something free ain't worth much? Here's the cultural dynamic. We want to have some message that is so compelling that you'll pay $99.95 for the next three months for me to give you the, the knowledge that you need for you to get ahead in life. I mean, that marketing is fantastic because we all go, man, there probably is something that I need to get ahead in life. And it's only $99.95 for three months. That's, it's, that's probably a good bargain. The second thing that they're looking at is Paul's humility in that in Acts 18, it says that Paul, during his time in Corinth, worked with, um, uh, worked with a group of people who were tent makers. So now, Paul doesn't even accept money to maintain his ministry. So his ministry isn't that impressive because he should get paid for what he's doing and his message must not be that valuable because he's preaching it for free. Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Let's ask a question. Could the Corinthian church have paid Paul? Oh yeah. This is a church that has no problem with money. And in fact, Paul's relying on the Macedonian churches. What have we learned about the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians thus far? They're, they're impoverished. They give vastly beyond what is reasonable or wise for the, for the joy of taking part in Paul's ministry. But Paul's ministry methodology will change in a rich city with a rich church because he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to let money get in the way of the message. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. 
Now, wouldn't you like to have Paul on your refrigerator that you support the apostle Paul? And Paul so cares about the heart of this church that he wants to make sure that there's no obstacle, there's nothing in the way of you understanding that salvation is free. I won't take a dime because Jesus loves you and Jesus saved you and he and you can receive it free and clear. Isn't that great? Paul understands his culture so well that he is willing to be particularly and peculiarly distinct in his Christian convictions. I can't do that. I cannot accept money in this city for the preaching of the gospel message. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine, what is his boasting? His boasting is that I will not charge for my ministry. My boasting will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. I'm going to keep preaching for free. I'm going to keep telling people salvation is free. I'm going to keep telling people that he who was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how impressive you are. You've got nothing that stands up against the free gospel message of grace. And I'm going to keep boasting and keep preaching and keep telling people that salvation is free. And why? Verse 11, because I do not love you. Watch this. This is, oh man, this is good. The false apostles now say, we've got a great message and you should pay us for this message. And look at Paul over here preaching salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone for free. You know what? Paul doesn't really love you because he won't allow you to support his ministry. Isn't, I mean, could you get a more sinister accusation than that? And what's Paul got to say? Because I don't love you, God knows I love you. God knows. Verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do. Now, here's why he does it. This isn't just Paul's personal convictions in the culture, but Paul takes a tactic. He takes a, uh, he takes a skill set that works in the boxing ring for him to go toe-to-toe with these false apostles. Now he's coming for them. What, am I, what I am doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms we do. Now, here's the false apostle saying, you ought to pay us for our ministry. Here's the false apostle saying, we need more of you to believe and to get on board with the message that we have been called by God to preach. And here's Paul, unimpressive, unskilled, an idiot when it comes to his speech, continuing to press the fact that I am not going to take a dime for my ministry because the gospel is free and people matter and their, relation, their love relationship with Christ matters. And Paul says, we're going to separate the men from the boys right here. Let's see if they're willing to preach. Let's see if their gospel is worth suffering for. Let's see if they're willing to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ so that people might be brought into the kingdom of God. And he says, the thing that I'm going to do is not charge because now you're going to see where their motivations lie. 
Now you're going to see whether or not they follow Jesus Christ. Now you're going to see whether or not their ministry is founded upon the ministry of spiritually and physically suffering so that people might know Christ. Now they boast that we're the same. They boast we're on the same level. But would you agree that something, if something matters to you, you'll suffer for it? That if something is important to you, you will put up with pain. You will put up with hardship. You will put up with difficulty. But if it doesn't, when the money dries up, you'll walk away. So Paul says, I'm going to undermine, I'm going to cut off this claim that they think we work on the same terms. Verse 13, you ready? Here comes the haymaker. Now, if you, if you want in this chapter, what you can do is take out verses, because uh, what Paul's going to do is come back to how he started the chapter. He started the chapter with Eve and Satan, right? You with me? Say yes. Okay, that's what he did. Now, look at verse 13, because he's gonna, he's gonna, he gave you his ministry model. Here's how I'm going to do it so that I could undermine the claim of those false apostles out there who only preach for money. But now let me show you who they are, verse 13. And he's going to come back to the marriage illustration. He's going to come back to the singular love relationship that God's people are supposed to have with Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He's going to say it three times, disguising, which means to transform. We're trying to look like the real thing. But they're false, they're deceitful. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The best false teachers look the most like an angel or a messenger of light. Do you know that? Spiritual warfare doesn't happen with pitchfork and horns, that's not how it works. Satan would far more rather commandeer our thinking by preaching theology about Jesus Christ that is just barely off. Why is the temptation in the garden so good? Because it's just barely off. No wonder Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if, here we go, his servants... Now, in context, who are the servants? They're the false apostles in the church. Who is their master? Satan himself. The one who preaches a false gospel about a false Christ with a false spirit. It's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Is there an end for these false teachers, Paul? There is. But it's not now. Well, if the end and the result of this false teaching isn't going to be judged now, and all you have in front of you is the Apostle Paul and his refusal to play by the cultural rules, his refusal to align his ministry with human metrics, then what is left for, for you and for me 
What's left is for us to begin to evaluate our spiritual lives, to begin to evaluate our doctrinal convictions about who is Jesus, which requires you and requires me to have a significant amount of Christ biblical discernment to understand the temptations that we face in our church, in our culture, in our day, in our family, in our workplaces, right? That we are... You are under spiritual attack. I am under spiritual attack constantly. That's been the theme throughout these past two chapters, that consistently your thoughts are being tempted away from a singular, devoted love relationship with Jesus Christ. That there are false gospels and false stories that even find their way into the church. Why do we spend so much time explicitly talking about who Jesus is according to the word of God? Because I, frankly, I have a false conception of Jesus all the time that needs to be worked out of me. I have all sorts of assumptions about Jesus Christ, about how he ought to make me successful and wealthy and, you know, lose that extra 15 pounds and be more, whatever it is. Whatever kind of life hope I have, we have the same temptation that Eve faced. We face the same temptations to go, does God really love me? Is God for me? is staying within the limits in my life and trusting that I have no other hope than Jesus Christ, really the best for me. Have you heard those temptations? Do you know those conversations that cause you to question God's love for you in Jesus Christ? So Paul says, I bring into this a divine jealousy. And every spiritual leader is in this constant work. Our elders and our leaders in this church are in this constant work to make sure that our hearts are not being tempted away from singular devotion to Jesus Christ. So we continually, and we ask these questions. Jesus, what do you want us to do in this situation? Jesus, who do you want me to be in this situation? Jesus, what kind of character are you seeking to produce in me to conform me to the image of your son? And that challenge is the crux of the Christian life. So as I close, I think it would be important for us to say, in this church, who is Jesus? See, in our church, what we believe is that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's not a created being. He's not an angel. He's not a prophet. He is God incarnate. That when Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life, he defines who he is. And we allow that Jesus to speak into our church, to speak into our lives through his word. Because we believe that every single person in this room has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room is a sinner. Every single person in this room is in need of spiritual renewal, not just spiritual modification. 
And when we as a church preach, we say that everybody is a sinner and everyone is in need of redemption because nobody can fix themselves on their own. And no matter what story is out there that you think is the story of relative salvation, of making more money, of getting the girl or getting the guy or getting the career, they will all fall in light of the true gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Dead, buried, raised. So when we talk about that as a church, we continue to return to the singular focus of the scriptures of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're going to keep preaching that message. You want to come back next week? You're going to hear the same thing. Why? Because you are tempted in your spiritual life to wander. You're tempted in your spiritual life to believe false gospels. And it's our job as a church, it's our job, not just me up here, but us as a church, to remind one another that Jesus loves me. Jesus has designed our relationship to be one of singular purity and devotion. To where one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb will happen, and we will see him face to face. And all along the way, we're encouraging one another in our devotion to Jesus Christ. So, Father, in this text, we ask that you give us great courage to put it into practice. That even now, as we pause and we pray, we ask that you would reveal to us false gospels that we are tempted to believe, that raise up a false Christ. that seek to preach a false spirit and a false way of salvation and you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Oh, how we need you to be the center of our worship. We acknowledge our temptations to believe false things and Father, pray that you would fulfill your promise just like you do in Ephesians, that one day you will present the church to you radiant, without spot or blemish or any such things, would you keep us pure? Would you keep us devoted? Would even now you stoke the affections of our hearts to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.